Rob, you are loved, man. So it's going to be Joshua Tim this evening. Uh, who wants to pray to kick us off? Why don't you get it, Lemon? Mighty God, we thank you, Father. Father, we thank you for your word. A lamp to our feet, Father, light to our eyes. Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather here today to partake of you, Father, to partake of your word. Father, we take care of every thought, God, and share our hearts to receive your message. Yes, to receive God. what you have for us today, Father. We pray for Pastor Harry, God. That you anoint his lips, Father. That you give him the word. Mighty God, we thank you. We praise you. Yes, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, you know it's our tradition that Jennifer reads the whole chapter to us. And uh, we're going to start there with Jennifer reading the chapter. I just want to tell you tonight, uh, we're going to cover Stoned from Heaven. And uh, this is part one of four. I had a choice whether to fly through chapter 10 and tell you everything I know about it in a single evening and you retain very little of it, or to take the book so seriously that uh, we would break it up into four parts. And, um, and you're going to see you know, a week that emphasizes its similarity to Revelation. You're going to see uh, the physical and practical uh, implications of the battle and why, you're going to see a lot of things. But tonight, our topic is the prophetic warning in Stoned from Heaven. Okay? So, uh, Jennifer, why don't you read for us, huh? Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to, to Ai and its king as he has done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and all of his people were, were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than I, and all of its men were good fighters. So Adonai, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Horam, king of Hebron, Purim, king of Darfmud, Japhia king of Lachish, and Debir king of Eglon. Come up and help attack Gideon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorite kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gideon and attacked it. The Gideon <coughs> then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. Then the, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them all down the way to Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. And more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the sword of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, 
O sun, stand still over Gideon. O moon, valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky, delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all of Israel to the camp of Gilgal. Now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave of Machedah. When Joshua told the five kings had been found hiding in the cave of Machedah, he said, Roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear. and Do not let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hands. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man. But the few who left reached their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp of Machedon, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave. The king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees, and they were left hanging on the trees until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the orders, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed a large rocks, which are there to this day. That day, Joshua took Machida. He put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors, and he did this to the king of Machedon, as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him moved from Machedon to Libna and attacked it. The Lord also gave the city and its king into Israel's hand. The city and everyone in it Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors there, and he did it to its king, and as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him moved from Libna to Lachish. He took up positions against it and attacked it. The Lord handed Lachish over to Israel, and Joshua took it on the second day. The city and everyone in it he put to the sword, just as he had done to Libna. Meanwhile, Horam, king of Gezer, had come up to help Lachish, but Joshua defeated him and his army until no survivors left. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on to Lachish, to Eglon. They took up positions against it and attacked it. They captured it the same day and put it to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it, just as they had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They took this city and put, the, put it to the sword, together with its king, its villages, and everyone in it. They left no survivors, just as Eglon. They totally destroyed it and everyone in it. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him turned around and attacked Debir. They took this city, its king, its villages, and put them to the sword. Everyone in it they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. They did to Debir and its king as they had done to Libna and the king to Hebron. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all of their kings. He had left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. 
Joshua subdued them from Kadesh, Barnir to Gaza, and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign, because the Lord the God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all of Israel to the camp of Gilgal. What an extraordinary chapter. Look, there are so many things that I want to tell you, it's hard to know where to begin. Let me, uh, let me remind you of a map here, quickly. It could sound like this is over. I mean, he subdued the whole region. It's not over. This is what we're looking for. What's in red is what is possessed today. What is in green is the royal land grant. You see how much we have left to do? Yes. Okay, so Joshua's not done. That's in, in chapter 10, we haven't finished. But I, I will say this. How many of you had an overwhelming time period in the last two months? Yes. Yes. It occurred to me today for the first time. You know, there are some really difficult things that have happened to Joshua here. He uh, has made some mistakes. Now, being allied with the Gibeonites has pulled him into a war. It could look like he was really being punished, at least before the battle is over, right? Yeah. And God's just doing him a favor. He brought all of these people that he has to fight to him. He didn't have to go hunt them down where they were hiding. What if all of the overwhelming problems that have happened to you this week were just God's way of grouping the enemies together so that you could get it all done in one day? This is what Elder Steve calls a target-rich environment. We need to get a proper perspective on these things. Uh, To do that, I wanted to give you a situational overview of our previous chapters and the placement of both the Gibeonites and the Israelites so that you'll understand the material we covered tonight in all of its context. There are going to be a lot of questions I'm sure that you have. You know, everybody's fascinated with the hailstones, so I thought I would start there. Uh, You might be thinking of Romans 16.20, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I mean, this, this is one of the more preached on chapters at LCM when it comes down to it. I bet I've preached on this chapter 15 or 20 times in the last 24 years. I love it. It... It's like when you finish the book of Revelation and you realize uh, you realize we win, right? <laughs> but first and foremost, this is a book of prophecy. And people forget that. The Jews put Joshua in the prophetic books for a reason. And I wanted to talk to you about that. So if you glance up at the screen here, we see our divisions of the Bible listed. The Tanakh, you remember, is of course an an acrostic. The T, the N, and the K being the Torah, the first section or the law. The N being the Nevim, the former and latter prophets. And the K being the Hebrew word Ketuvim for writings. That's review for many of you, but it needs... How many of you still have to consult the chart to know what section you're... I I do too. A six-year-old Israeli child would not. So we need to get familiar with this because it forms how you look at them. Covering that, remember. That's very small, isn't it? Is that better? 
Remember that the Torah, the section that we call law, is not some useless, archaic piece of uh, literature that is only for morality. Uh, it is, in fact, the story of the founding of Israel. The first 11 chapters of Genesis cover 2,000 years, all to get us to one place where we can start the story of Israel, which would be the priestly nation that would produce the Savior of mankind. They're an example to the world. So how they were founded is very important. That would then move us to our next section, how Israel inherited their promised land, and once they were in it, what brought them into captivity. When you're reading a prophetic book, it is warning you about captivity to come, that there are promises, but there is also captivity if you are breaking God's commands. So what should we see first and foremost in Joshua 10? See, when we see it, we see only victory. But we're not, and that causes us to miss something. It's a little bit like the preaching of the gospel today. When all you hear is Jesus wants to save you, 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 you forget that you're damned already. You don't know what you're being saved from. You don't realize that you need the key to the jail cell because you've not been told you're in one. It's just normal life to you. When we get to Joshua 10, we're like, all right, he's opened up a can, y'all. And you don't realize the mercy that is actually being displayed to Joshua himself and the Israelites. We're going to cover that tonight because it's a prophetic book. Sometimes mercy does that to us. When you are shown mercy... Very, very often you can forget that it is, in fact, mercy. Anybody in here have employees that work for them? If you give people a bonus at the same time of year, every year, they stop seeing it as a bonus, don't they? They see it as an entitlement. In fact, they're angry if one year they did not get the bonus, right? They might even be angry if it's not bigger than last year's bonus. It kind of takes away the idea of what a bonus is and it makes it a salary, doesn't it? Well, mercy that is counted on in advance, you are treating as if it is your wage, your right, and your entitlement. It's not mercy. We're going to cover tonight the way in which mercy is playing a role in this chapter because it's not something I think one in 10,000 Christians considers. That takes us to a reminder here that Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What's, what's 5 say? Somebody tell me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Those three things that are in a human being, there is a section of the Bible for each part to help you. The law helps instruct the heart. Deuteronomy 5.29 says, Oh, that their hearts were inclined to fear me. The law and the formation of Israel was also forming your heart. The prophets were there to warn your soul. Tell you, love the Lord. Obey the Lord. Love the Lord. Obey the Lord. The writings are there to tell you how your strength carries out God's word how you physically walk it out. It turns out that the book is designed in a way to complement and instruct your design. 
Isn't that beautiful symmetry in the word? Yes. I went the better part of my Christian walk having no idea that those things were present. Benefiting from them like a child that is benefiting from a computer but doesn't know how it works. Okay, I'm still in that situation with a computer. Uh, Let's do this. Let's kill that screen. I'm going to hand out some scriptures for you. And uh, Chris, since you're beginning to grow a mustache again... (laughs) 2 Kings 17.13, Frank, 1 Kings 1.12, David Hull, 1 Samuel 8.9. This is largely review material, so I'm moving quickly. I will start to slow down when we get to new material because I want you to learn it. I don't want to bore those of you that were here and really, really have acquainted yourself with the first week. But let's face it, that was a long time ago. We could use a, a reminder. Okay. Second Kings 17.13 The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. Something about what we're reading tonight because it is a prophetic book, ought to be warning our souls. Like we might warn a child upstairs that will fall if you pull on it. So one of the things that was my goal tonight is to make sure that as we cover the 10th chapter, we are in fact being faithful to the section of the Bible that it is in. So I want to make sure that you are warned I have been warned by chapter 10 in ways I had never seen before. Mm-hmm. We're going to come back to that. 1 Kings one twelve. 1 Kings one twelve. Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. One of the things that the prophets do is show you how to save and protect life. Not just your life, but the life of you and your children. Chapter 10 is not just about the destruction of life. It is also about the salvation of life and others who receive it that don't deserve it. Oh, that's extraordinary. It turns out that the prophets don't just warn us, they advise us. We're going to get advice tonight on how we should live. Warning about how we should live and advice on how we should live. 1 Samuel 8, 9. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the kings who will reign over them will do. Whatever we let reign in our lives is going to have an effect on us. Whatever that is, if you let fear be king over you, then it's going to produce something. If you let faith be uh, your most guiding principle, that will have an effect on you. The prophets teach us that. We can see time periods in the prophetic books where Israel is extraordinarily blessed because God was reigning over them. When they chose idols from the nations around them as their gods, that also had an effect. Tonight, I'm persuaded that by the end of this, you will firmly want uh, something to reign over you. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go back to the screen for a second. You may remember this from a previous time. When we're looking at Joshua... Joshua's name, as he was born, was Hoshea. And Hoshea, uh, of course, means salvation. In Numbers 13, 16, 
Joshua was given the nickname. He was Hoshea, and he was called by Moses Joshua. By the time the Hebrews are pronouncing the word Joshua in the time of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 8.17, this word that we're saying Joshua was pronounced Yeshua. That's a pretty clear foreshadowing of Jesus, is it not? not? You hear that thrown around from preachers an awful lot, but you usually are not given the Strong's numbers, the references, and the etymological research that shows you exactly how it happened. That's why I'm reminding you of that. Okay, you can kill that screen. So Joshua, among many things, foreshadows the events in the book of Revelation. That's because they're both prophetic books. I want to whet your appetite for some of what we're going to do. We're not going to do it all tonight. We have part one of four tonight. There are two spies in both books. These spies can be considered witnesses. Previously, ten of the twelve spies or witnesses failed. What does that mean? Two succeeded. Only two show up in the book of Revelation. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? No more failure in the book of Revelation. Both books have a military campaign that is based on seven trumpets. That's pretty exciting. The defeat of enemy armies under an antichrist king appears in both books. Did you hear tonight the name of the king of Jerusalem who is the head of the allies against Israel? If the Gibeonites had been with him, how many nations would have been attacking? Six. But the Gibeonites defected. Somewhere in here you see a transition from the reign of sin and man to the reign of grace. That's beautiful, isn't it? Now, I'm sure that you already have this Hebrew in your mind, but Adonai means Lord. Zedek means? Isn't it interesting that the enemies of God and the ones that want to kill His people proclaim themselves the Lord of Righteousness? Almost as if they think their system will work. The one they created for themselves. Both books have signs in the heavens. Tonight we're going to get to some of those signs in the heavens and man do I love it. Both books point to a special seven-year conquest. You remember in Joshua 14, 7, Caleb is 40 years old when the first spies go in. In verse 10, uh, he's 85 years old at the receiving of his inheritance. That's 45 years between those two events. In Deuteronomy 2, 14 through 18, it says it was 38 years between the two spying events. That gives you a seven-year military campaign. The last thing that is uh, in both books, and probably most pertinent tonight, is the book of Joshua is a precursor to the book of Revelation. Because two leaders, both called Yeshua, are commanders-in-chief of the armies of heaven, And they are dispossessing the planet Earth of its usurpers. They both first send in two witnesses. They both have a series of judgments based on seven. 
and they both defeat allied kings under an antichrist with signs in the sun in the moon while the majority of the earth's rulers are hiding in caves that's overwhelming when you think about that isn't it are you interested yet in the four parts i'm trying i'm trying to fan some interest into you the book of joshua can be summarized by chapters one through five where they enter the land by chapters 6 through 12, where they are overcoming the enemy, and praise God, we're at the latter part of that section now. And chapters 13 through 24, where they have to occupy the land. You know what I love about that? Your Christian walk can be summarized by how you have entered into the battle, how you have overcome the enemy, and then how you occupy what God has given you. In which section is the largest? Chapters 13 through 24. How do we walk in what we now have won? We all love to talk about salvation. We love to talk about the way that Jesus has overcome the enemy for us. But the majority of Christian living is to the right on the timeline of the cross, not before it. The biggest problem in American Christianity is that while we talk about the cross and we say we go back to the cross, we really never grow past it. I'm not suggesting that the cross ever becomes obsolete. Please don't play with my words. What I'm suggesting is that we're supposed to grow up in our salvation and occupy more than just a salvation experience. I want to remind you that the key to victory in Joshua has always been the first chapter, in the 8th verse. Who will read that for us? Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. With that in mind, the most important thing to pick up from the book of Joshua is the attitude of Joshua. That's going to remain true tonight. I told you that before we began the book, and I'm reminding it to you tonight, but I bet there's something in the attitude of Joshua in chapter 10 that you haven't noticed. He defeats the world at Jericho. He leans only upon the Lord with no weapons. He saves the Gentile graftins, both the uh, woman Rahab and the Gibeonites. He fights for and completes God's promised inheritance to Israel, the allotment of the land. He is the desire of Moses, or the desire of the law, fulfilled. And he does all of this solely by trusting in the word of God. That's pretty darn exciting. We're picking up in the 10th chapter tonight with an active, victorious, faith-filled offensive. When we leave here tonight, if the goal of this ministry is to perform out there what you've practiced in here, then you will leave here tonight with an active, victorious, faith-filled offensive. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to share some things with you about astronomy, about geology. We're going to talk about the heart of God, all kinds of things. But if you walk out that door and you are not active, victorious, and full of faith, then I didn't fail, you failed. Do you want to succeed? Yes. Do all of you want to succeed? Yes. 
I'm learning that when I single people out, sometimes it's productive in their life. Keep that in mind tonight, because I'll be looking for you. Let's begin to reacquaint ourselves as we approach chapter 10 with a paradox we discovered earlier. Okay? Uh, Jonathan, you read Joshua 6, verse 27, and Curtis... You pick up in the very next verse, Joshua 7 and verse 1. Joshua six twenty-seven. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Man, what a great verse. The Lord was with Yeshua, and his fame was throughout the land. The verse that comes next, and there are no chapters in the book of Joshua as it was originally written, Curtis is going to read to us. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to devoted things, for Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. The astonishing contrast between the last verse of chapter 6 and the first verse of the seventh chapter is perhaps the second greatest thesis in all of the scripture. The contrast between the uh, favor of God with you and the unfaithfulness that is also there. I say second because the only story that is emphasized with more veracity in the scripture is God's ability to save you anyway, despite this contrast. That's very important. To know... That God has not departed from you because you're a screw-up. You were a screw-up when he found you. You're still a screw-up. And if you believe that you're not, then you're screwing up when you believe that. We're a diseased stock. And yet, we are being regenerated and sin is being driven from our life. This is not an excuse to live in our sin. What shall we say? Uh, uh, since there's grace, let sin abound. Paul used a word in Hebrew that means something to the effect of hell no. We cannot do that. And at the same time, we have to acknowledge that this conflict exists and deal with it appropriately. So, Abimbola, read to us Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. Romans 5, 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is both saving you and you are guilty. That's incredible. He did not approach you when you had striven to a place of perfection and then he decided to accept you. When you were powerless and you acknowledged it, when you were powerless and you hated it, when you had hit a brick wall and said, I cannot live in the folly of my ruined life anymore, he stretches out to save you. Ironically, one of our greatest fears is because we have lived that way so long, we'll never be able to live any other way. And to that I say, but God. 
Because when he enters into your situation, it changes. Amen. Justin Treister, read Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. You could say that Eve was the first to sin, kind of. Adam certainly sinned by failing to instruct her correctly. He didn't lead her correctly, and instead she led him. So you might argue that Adam sinned and then joined Eve in her sin, and that process has never stopped multiplying sin. Death has come to all of us, not just because Adam sinned, but because we all joined in the sin. I'm not trying to diffuse responsibility we all have heard people who love sin use their favorite adage. They say things like, we're all just sinners. As if because we're all sinners, nobody is guilty. Instead, I am saying that every man is responsible for his own actions, and every man's actions affect the rest of mankind, and every man's actions are laced with sin. It's my hope that before the evening is over, the pattern that we've taught previously will see emphasized again and you'll begin to acclimatize yourself with something that is new being added to the pattern tonight. Something that I don't think you picked up before. Something I don't think you'll read in a commentary. Something I didn't read in a commentary. Contrary to the prevailing ignorance of our time, we are more vulnerable when we succeed than when we have been defeated. It seems that Joshua failed at I because he failed to inquire of God. His self-reliance is echoed in us every time we feel like, hey, I've got this, and then fall on our face. So what happened in chapter 8? You're in chapter 10. What happened in chapter 8? What happened, Curtis? The fall of Ai. In chapter 8, an enemy that had previously defeated Joshua, Joshua had success with. Man, isn't that good? When something has been beating you, you beat it. Something you've been falling to, you've overcome it. Oh, glory day, right? So what happens in chapter 9? Was Joshua supposed to make a treaty? No. Do you mean to tell me that when Joshua beat Jericho in chapter 6, he failed in losing to Ai in chapter 7? And when he beat Ai in chapter 8, he failed by not inquiring of God in chapter 9. His every success seems to be followed by a failure. One frustrated father looking at a teenager here recently said, we seem trapped in this cycle. I was like, yeah. (laughs) I want to talk to you a little bit about that cycle. Somebody read to me Joshua 9.14. 
The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Why did they sample the provisions, but not inquire of the Lord? Hey man, I got this. I can see with my own eyes, I can hear with my own ears. They have already forgotten the lesson that they were whipped by eye because they didn't inquire of God to see if they were right. Do you see how in four chapters we're seeing the same mistake twice? In chapter 6, victory. Chapter 7, failure because of the previous victory. In chapter 8, victory. Chapter 9, failure because of the previous victory. Do you pray more when you're losing or winning? You need to reverse that pattern. We pray when we're down. We need help, Lord. But when we're up, we forget we need help, and that's when you actually need it more. God doesn't despise the broken and contrite, but He does despise the I've got this, put it all together. You're beginning to wonder why or understand why Jesus was hard on religious people and soft on whores and tax collectors? He loves the man that knows how badly he needs him. And he begins to stiff arm the man that thinks he no longer needs him. So to us, success is a bit dangerous. I'd like to show you something just to try to make a mental image. Plus, I figured out how to do this in PowerPoint today, and I was <laughs> proud of it. At Jericho, there was success. Failure came when they failed to inquire of God, and men died. Then we move to chapter 8, where there's the successful destruction of I. Of course, in chapter 9, they failed to inquire of God, and now they're forced to defend their ally in a war. The first time they went through the mistake cycle, it cost them some lives, 36 to be exact. And then how many other people were in Aiken's family? The next time, it cost them a global not global, a regional war. They're at war with five other nations because they failed to inquire of God. And yet, we identify with the Gibeonites, right? Wasn't that last week? You are God's Gibeonite. Didn't we learn that last week? Yes. Do you mean to tell me that God knew He was going to make the mistake, decided to use it anyway, in advance, and still holds them accountable for making the mistake. Welcome to the wisdom of God. I was laughing with the pastors today. I said, it's a little bit like knowing ahead of time. My teenager is going to get me in trouble. So I put a gun in the glove box. We drive somewhere. Teenager gets out of the car just having a great time. And before long, he's caused trouble. Running back to the car, you know, Dad, help, Dad, help. I'm like, I know, son, duck. Bam, 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 bam. <laughs> Dad, you had a gun and it was loaded? How did you know? Well, I know you. <laughs> this is a little bit what it's like. God, you remember that God comments on Samson's desire for the first Philistine girlfriend? And he said... 
Samson's parents didn't know that the Lord was using this to draw Samson into warfare. Yeah. That doesn't mean that Samson was innocent. No. That doesn't mean it was the right thing to do. It just means that the Lord knew Samson. Oh, man. Let that sit on you for a minute. The reason that that's encouraging to me, even though it's a very discouraging story, is the Lord knows you were you. And he knew exactly what mistakes you were liable to make, and he accounted for them ahead of time. Before the evening's over, you may be shocked to find out how many centuries ahead of time he has accounted for them. That takes us right into Joshua 10. In Joshua 10, somebody read me verse 6. The Gibeonites sent word to Joshua and the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. What a situation the Gibeonites are in. Those whom they were former allied with are now at war with them. And why? Because they made peace with Joshua. Anybody got family members like this? I was once allied with them. They loved me. I loved them. I made peace with Joshua. And now they're at war with me. It's a very old story. It's been an old story for a long time. Now... Joshua is a far better man than I am, which is why I would run to him for salvation. If this were me, what verse was that, Cody? I'd say 10-6. Well, 10-6. What's verse 9, or chapter 9 and verse 6 say? 10-6 and 9-6. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him, and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. It's a, Mr. Gibeonite, we got a real problem. These people are trying to kill you. They got war with you. I got a whole army here. But you told me you live so far away, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it in time. Sucks to be you. Do you, do you see the inherent problem here? The treaty is based on the fact that the Gibeonites live so far away that your bread molds. Your sacks get worn out. Your donkey gets tired. It took us so long to get here, Joshua. And now that they're in trouble, turns out they're very close. (laughs) This also reminds me of my relatives. (laughs) They want nothing to do with me. 99% of the time, but when there's trouble, it's like, hey man, I'm your sister. You know, remember, you're my flesh and blood. Oh, you think I'm crazy when I go to worship and preach and pray, but now that you're sick, you want me to come pray with you. It does happen too often, doesn't it? Of course, we have a little God versus man's heart issue here too, don't we? So I'm just telling you, like, when they sent word to me in 10.6, I would have replied, read previous chapter, same verse. (laughs) (laughs) 
Sorry you guys are getting attacked. Since you came from such a distant country, I'm afraid I may not be able to travel that great distance and reach you with my army in time. Let me know how it works out for you. But he doesn't do that. Joshua has two real issues at hand. The first is, he's made an oath in the name of the Lord. The second is the one that all of us are overlooking. Very hard for Joshua to stand there and say, You defrauded me. You lied to me. You are a sinner. And I am not going to help a sinner. Why? Because Joshua sinned in the 7th chapter, but God helped him in the 8th. He then again sinned in the ninth chapter, but God's helping him in the 10th. See how easily we forget what God has done for us when someone else wrongs us? Do you see how easily we forget that Joshua the man needs the very same mercy that he's being asked to give the Gibeonites. Well, they got quiet all of a sudden. It's because we've never read the 10th chapter from the position that in the 9th chapter Joshua is sinning. We've never read it that way. Poor Joshua. He's got to go into battle knowing that he has sinned. He shouldn't be in this battle at all. Yes, they're the enemies of God, but he's only in the battle because the enemy of God is attacking a former enemy. I mean, a former ally, rather. What an awkward, precarious situation. (laughs) Will God still be with me if I've made not just one mistake, but I keep repeating it? Yeah, it's a good thing none of you have any reason to pay careful attention to that. Um, Will God still be with me if I have repeated the mistake? Isn't that a good question? Give me a little hand. I didn't even tell the pastors we were going here. The first issue. Let's begin to take that. Actually, before we do, um, Bob, read to us Hebrews 5 and verse 2. deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going to astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. See, one of the benefits of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is that he knows what it is to get tired. He knows what it is to get hungry. He knows what it is to have compassion well in him. 
He knows what it is to have his eyes filled with tears and wet his chest with those tears. He experienced all of those things. So he is able to deal with us in a perfect way. He was not subject to sin, but he was subject to human frailty and weakness. When he didn't eat, he got hungry. When he hadn't slept enough, he got tired. Joshua knows how to deal with the Gibeonites because he knows how God is dealing with him. What if your repeated mistake is teaching you how to deal with others that are repeating mistakes? Come on. Come on. Because I ask the Lord for mercy all of the time, but I would just kill you if you need mercy. I mean, I, I'm wicked like that. I can see your sense oh, clearly. I'm like, why can't I hate it? Of course, my own, much harder to see. Got all of that pride in my eyes. But I'm the only one like that in here. <laughs> It's been said that we love our sin and hate everyone else's. Joshua has to enter this battle to protect the Gibeonites, knowing he was never supposed to be in alliance with them. Moses warned him several times. He has to do it knowing that he failed to inquire of the Lord. He's like, wow, when's the last time that happened? That's right, that happened the first time I attacked I. And it cost lives in a battle, and we lost the battle. Now I'm going into another battle without inquiring of the Lord. Can you imagine what that must have been like? See, we read it, and we know what's coming. Man, Joshua's going to command the sun to stand still. Do you find it hard to have big faith when you stand in a repeated mistake? Do you find it much easier to have big faith when you feel like you're riding the glory of success? Absolutely. But which is the more dangerous position, to be in the valley of defeat or to be on the giant mountaintop of your success? See, the more dangerous position is after the victory, not after the defeat. Do you know what the message is to you, Christian? He's close to you when you're broken and you need him the most. That's the time for the biggest faith. The devil is screaming in your ear that he won't listen, that he won't help you, that you have so offended him, he won't, he will not. No, he's closer to you when you're in that position. He's actually further from you when you're tending to think you don't need him very much. Yeah, you're not reacting to that like you understand it. See, I know exactly what the position is that he's in because I find myself in it all of the time. Let's read chapter 9, verse 15 through 19. Who's going to get that one? Uh, Rob's been getting them, so we're going to let Rob sit for a minute. Who's going to get that one? Randy. Randy, all these guys raised their hands, and it was easy to just pick the prettiest person. You did good the day you married her, Daniel. Daniel's growing his hair out, he's brushing, he's getting all GQ. Yeah, 9, 15 through 19. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were 
neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities. Gibeon, Kephire, Beroth, and Kiriath, Jerom. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. You remember this. Leviticus 19, 12, Exodus 20, verse 7, and the whole chapter, Numbers 30. We don't break our oaths, period. You make an oath, you keep your oath, or you go to the one that you made it to and you ask to be released, but you cannot break your oath. But if they found it difficult to not kill the Gibeonites, to not attack them in the ninth chapter, how hard do you think it was for them to have to go defend them in the tenth chapter? That's a really difficult predicament. In the ninth chapter, the only reason that they're not attacking them is they've given their word. Now in the tenth chapter, God's doubling down on the word. Supposed to learn and grow from our mistakes. Your flesh didn't want to keep the word in chapter nine, so God's going to put it to the test in chapter ten. Isn't that interesting? That brings us to the second of Joshua's issues. He had been shown mercy. I want to give you a character sketch of the Gibeonites, because last week what I did was I showed you the way in which we're the Gibeonites. Y'all all agree we're the Gibeonites, right? Yes. Yes. Y'all all agree we're the Gibeonites? Yes. 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 Oh, man, you're going to be so sorry that you agree that you're the Gibeonites. Because I'm a Gibeonite, too. And... Uh, this is going to be very good for those of us that occasionally get our nose in the air about one kind of sin versus another. So, uh, Cassidy, why don't you read to us Leviticus 18, beginning in verse 1, all the way through verse 26. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Hold there. You can't do like the Egyptians did where you came from. You can't do like the Canaanites do where you're going. You hear that? Now we're going to get a list. By the way, Gibeonites are Canaanites. We're about to get a list of the kind of behaviors they're being saved from. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Somebody say, ooh. Ooh. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. You ever wonder where that swear word came from? Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonor you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father. She is your sister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She is your father's close relative. (coughs) Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister because she is your mother's close relative. 
Do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are close relatives. That is wickedness. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanliness of her monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you, do, you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. How did the Gibeonites become defiled? All those things. And now you've got to go fight for them. I thought you were the Gibeonites. Sex with close relatives. Sex with your mother or father. Sex with your stepmother. Sex with your sister. Sex with your stepsister. Sex with your aunt. Sex with your uncle. Sex with your brother's spouse. Sex with mom and daughter in the same instance. Sex with grandmother, mother, and granddaughter in the same instance. Sex with your sister-in-law to provoke your, your wife. Sex with your neighbor's wives. Sex while menstruating. Sex with the, I'm sorry, sacrificing children to Molech in the fire. Homosexual sex and bestiality. <coughs> These are some of the things the Gibeonites were guilty of. But you know what they heard? God's judgment was coming upon them. And they did not want to fall under the judgment of God, so they ran to Joshua. And now Joshua, because of an ancient oath, is defending them. That's a little tough, isn't it? Peyton, read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 through 11. I just want to make sure all the Gibeonites hear us. From one Gibeonite to another. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Do you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. And what? That is what some of who were? Gibeonites. You're the Gibeonites. I'm a Gibeonite. That is what some of you were. 
See, Joshua knows to deal mercifully with them because Joshua needs mercy. He's already demonstrated two times in four chapters that he forgets God as much as everybody else. Is that incredible? Christian, is there a reminder in this for you? That is what some of you were. Keep reading. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. If somebody's in the process of being washed, if they're in the process of being sanctified, If they are justified, how dare us point to them as a Gibeonite and forget we were. That we are. Because in chapter 6 he's not, but in chapter 7 he is. In chapter 8 he's not, but in chapter 9 he is. And then the big question is, what will happen in chapter 10? And God helped him from the heavens win the battles he could not win on earth. Oh, come on, man. God helped from heaven win the battle that the man couldn't win on earth. Oh, Jesus, is there a message in this for you? We come into the Lord, we're not sure He'll help us, and we're so humble. We're so contrite. We're not sure we belong in the group. We just, I don't even know if I can sit with those righteous people. Then he cleans us all up. He's sanctifying us. We feel justified in his presence and we're so thankful. And then we go, what is that guy doing here? Joshua had two problems. We got a problem. He had made an oath in the name of the Lord. And God doesn't let people break oaths because he won't break the oath. And he may not want to give mercy, but he himself had already received mercy. And when you've received mercy, it is required that you accept that God has said something really different. Very interesting. Christy, read Deuteronomy 7, 2-3. Mandy, read Joshua 11 and verse 20. <coughs> Y'all learning anything? Yes. yes. Deuteronomy 7, 2-3. Deuteronomy 7, 2-3. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally, making no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. What? Don't you do that. Don't you do that to me. You're not allowed to show mercy to the Canaanites. Of course, you're also not supposed to make an oath. <laughs> Do you mean that they weren't counting on mercy because they're not supposed to get it, but they did? Man. God said, don't you make a treaty with Don't you do that. How about Joshua 11, 20? We might find out why God let it happen because he wasn't tricked.
After chapter 10, God says, listen, I want you to understand. I hardened these people's hearts so they would make war against you and you would exterminate them without mercy. mercy. But who had no desire to fight with Joshua? They were under a death sentence. They knew it. But they didn't bring their weapons. They came defenseless and said, will you help us? How do we get Jesus to help us? I'm not going to be through your arguments, your traps. Don't Please don't think you're going to be able to stand at that throne and quote to him a verse that you think is a magic verse. You came defenseless and guilty. And because you didn't come to make war, you came knowing you should be executed and asking for mercy. You got what he promised you would not get. Mercy. Come on, man. You see why I'm four-parting this one? Now, that's not how you read chapter 10. I know it. But it hit me today. And uh, and we're not halfway through. So I'm going to pick up the pace. But I, I was hoping this would bless you. How, why don't we do a mercy string? Right? It's not, it's not the four tops. It's the four seasons. Mercy, mercy. Yeah. Uh I need to not be in Motown right now or I will not finish the message. Rick, read to us Exodus 33, 19. Uh, Buddy, Hosea 6, 6. Gammy, Nehemiah 9, 30 through 31. Pastor Sutherland, Matthew 9, 10 through 13. Pastor Piro, uh, James 2, 12 through 13. Gabriel Stevens, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5. Sam, Revelation 22 and verse 21. Do you see what we did there? Every section of the Bible, but there is a caveat, so pay close attention. Not every book of the Bible, every section of the Bible dislocate my inability to speak correctly. <laughs> All right, whenever you got it, get it. Let's go. Exodus thirty-three nineteen, And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Do you mean to tell me that God Almighty, when doing something that is like appearing to a man, lets him know, because he's supposed to die if he sees God, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Sometimes we treat God like he's a prisoner of theology. Can I just tell you I don't think that highly of theologians? It's not that I don't love theology, I do. But I don't think so highly of the theologians that I think God is trapped by their schemes. That's an important concept for you to get. If you believe that you're going to leverage God with his word somehow, you're not as smart as you think you are. We've come to him like Gibeonites. Guilty, 
before a question is asked, deserving death, and saying we heard that every once in a while you give mercy to the undeserving. And he does. How about Hosea 6? Hosea 6, 6. For I deserve or desire mercy, not sacrifice. I, I desire mercy. God wants mercy. So if you have been given mercy, what do you think you're supposed to do? Give mercy. Okay. How about Nehemiah? Nehemiah 9, 30 to 31. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring people. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Isn't that incredible? They had repeated mistakes for centuries, but he didn't put an end to them. He was merciful to them. Oh, man. That is the answer to the question of chapter 10. If I failed you in chapter 7, and I failed you in chapter 9, I'm scared to go into the battle of chapter 10 because you might not be with me. No, he's not looking to put you to an end. He's looking to show you mercy so that you will stand up and fight the battle you're supposed to fight. Oh, come on, saints. Grab hold of your confidence. Look, I've been through some confidence shaking things lately. Right? All that has taught me is where I'm supposed to put my confidence. How about Matthew 9? Verses 10 through 13. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Lord is interested in the Gibeonites everywhere that have heard and believed the decree that they deserve death. And he wants to spare them. Not just the Gibeonites, but the whores too. So far in the book of Joshua, who do we have saved? A whore and the Gibeonites. Amen. <laughs> We're not even going to ask why the spies went to hide there. I mean, you can't say that, Eric. You're implying they did something wrong. You mean like people implied that Jesus was doing something wrong by hanging out with whores and tax collectors? Look, the thing I despise the most in Christianity is that after you Gibeonites get born again, you despise things that are not sin that you think look like sin. Mm. You don't actually despise sin. You despise things that look to you like it might be sin. It makes me sick. I hate it. I attack it at every turn. I'm probably like a broken record to you. The thing we're supposed to hate is sin. Not things that you think look like sin. This is what Jesus was criticized for. It's what, it's what they don't like about his ministry. Right? I'm convinced... The, the way that people get saved is when you call sin, sin, and righteousness, righteousness. Nobody's going to disagree with that, except there's a third category for most Christians. 
It's everything you don't like, but is also not sin. We, we're going to have to figure this out. And I think we are. Because there's a religious deception that's growing all over the world that has a whole different idea about what righteousness is. And for instance, your wife's pretty face to them is sin. It's sin. You don't think it's sin, but they do. So much for misquoting, avoid even the appearance of sin. That's not a scripture. You need to know that. That is not a scripture. You're supposed to avoid the emergence of evil, not something that someone thinks looks like sin. It's not a scripture. We're going to hear it a hundred thousand more times in our life. It is not in the Bible any more than godliness is next to cleanliness. It is a made-up verse based on a total misunderstanding. We want to cure these things. You know why? Don't forget what you are. You're a Gibeonite that has been washed. You've been sanctified. And you might not be judging correctly whether or not someone is sin when you judge by mere appearance. Let's deal with what God has shown you to deal with and leave your religious template out of our church. All right. James 2. Verse 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Man, this is what Joshua seems to get. I've been given mercy... So mercy is going to have to triumph over judgment for them. Now, does that mean that the Gibeonites could do anything they want? No. They had terms to their oath. What were the terms of their oath? They would be servants in the house of God forever. Don't throw me in the briar patch. (laughs) Don't you throw me in the briar patch. 1 Timothy 2. 
And I want to show you what it says. Who had that one? Revelation 22, 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. What is the difference between grace and mercy? See, mercy is when you should be punished and you are not. That is not what grace is. Grace is the power to not sin. A work of grace in you is when you were once a slave to sin, but now you have power over that sin. The grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no no to ungodliness. So the book of Revelation does not close with mercy being to God's people. It closes with grace being to God's people. You've already received mercy. What you need now is grace. The person that is crying mercy, mercy, mercy intends to sin again. The person that is crying grace, grace, grace never wants to sin again. Oh man, that's just semantics. No, it's not. It's not. Mercy is when you've got... I used to line my kids up against the wall. I know this surprises you. Drop their pants and hold the belt and talk to them about what I was fixing to do to them because of what they did. Judah and Gabe were little bitty, right? Because I spanked them even when they were little bitty. I don't really care what you think about that. Amen. These two little butt cheeks are right there. Going, mercy, Dad! Mercy! Mercy! Not mercy if you're expecting it. But boy, it was happy day in the Stevens household if I put up the belt. His little faces started to look around. He's not here. <laughs> if you receive mercy, you need to run from that situation and never re-enter it again. Amen. You know what that's called? Grace. Grace. <laughs> All right. Now, I know y'all didn't come here just to hear about mercy and grace. You came here because you wanted to hear about these giant stones falling from the sky. So let's talk about that for a minute. Joshua 10. You know how hard it is for me not to preach this. I'm not. We're going to just teach. And uh, pick up with me in verse 9. After a night march. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. We'll do that on another night. Let's not. Let's pick up verse 11 because I can't go through 9 without preaching. Verse 11. As they fled before Israel. Do you know how hard it is to forecard a message? I preach three messages every Sunday. As they fled before Israel on the road, down from Beth Haran to Azka, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. And more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Before we move too far into that topic, I'd like to tell you that the original does not say the Lord hailed large hail. The Lord hurled large hailstones. It says the Lord hurled large stones. And then in the next sentence, it says hailstones. Because of that, our interpreters are helping us. Thank you for that. And they simply use the word hailstone consistently because it seems to them that that's what we're talking about. Um, I never saw a 100-pound hailstone. Uh, 
hard for me to imagine how those things form in the clouds, but I, I don't want to get into that. I am suggesting to you tonight that if large stones are being thrown from the sky and we're not sure what to call it, the natural phenomenon that that looks the most like is when it rains and there's hailstones. I do not think we're talking about little bowls of ice here. And I'm going to show you a lot of reasons for that. But we're going to be confronted in chapter 10 with what people think is a Bible difficulty. It's like, ha ha, got you! I got you now! A sun and a moon stand still. That's not possible. Sun still, we rotate around it. That can't even happen! We're confronted with a worldview that says something like this. Things are today the way they have always been. Whatever I can see now is what has always been. And we are in a static, uniform, completely unchanging system of events. Stable in every way. I kind of feel like we're a butterfly that flew onto an oak tree, lives about seven days. The oak tree's been there for, I don't know, 300 years. We've explored a single piece of bark, and we think we understand everything about that oak tree. It's a matter of perspective. So I'm going to show you a few pictures to challenge this notion. What is that? craters on the moon. Yeah. Has anybody in here ever seen a giant rock hit the moon? No. But we have evidence that it's happened, huh? Yes. So apparently things are not always like they are right now. Yeah. On which of the six days did God sandblast the moon? <laughs> now, when you're thinking about that, The moon is not the only thing that's been hit by large rocks. Oh, well, we're talking about large rocks. This, rocks from space in the energy of impact. We're going to look at a few of these craters. And they're measured in megatons, okay? All the bombs detonated in World War II equaled about three megatons total. Total. Including Fat Boy. Hiroshima, Nagasaki-sized explosion down here. Crater impacts listed on the scale going up. You thought the most dangerous thing in our world was a nuclear bomb? <laughs> it's great. <laughs> this is in North Arizona. It's 2.4 miles in circumference, and it's 10 megatons. Let that settle in on you for a minute. That one impact was something like all of World War II. Hey, on which day of creation did that happen? You mean it's happened since creation? So the world's always been as it is right now? I'm playing with you a little bit. There's a reason. 
Let's take this one. Russia, 1908. This flattened 2,000 square miles of uninhabited Siberia. When you say 1908, that's not that long ago. 15 megatons. That's a picture of the area as you go to it. That was in 1908, a little over 100 years ago. We have near misses every day. And you know when they know we had a near miss? After. <laughs> Woo! In the Yucatan Peninsula. This might be the bad boy that got the dinosaurs. We're pretty sure that we understand everything about the universe. I'm challenging that hubris for a reason. The reason I'm asking this is that the view that the things have always been the way are now is naive and arrogant. Not even our earth is now as it once was. In most reasonable people's minds, they can fit together the puzzle pieces of the earth. It's only in a time when people don't know how parts go together, (laughs) that we can't see this. But ancient societies knew about Pangaea, and today we call it a supercontinent, and anybody that has ever looked at South America and Africa and North America and Europe can see how they fit together. So the earth hasn't always been as it is now. In the Bible, one dry landmass appeared, not seven continents. So something's happened. There's changes on the earth, maybe changes in the heavens. Then we got guys like this mammoth, who was found not that long ago in my lifetime, frozen with his hair still on him, not emaciated, flash frozen, in Siberia, with tropical vegetation inside of his stomach. That's not internet myth, guys. That's hard, real science. The earth is not as it once was. When we're reading this, we assume that the world that we're living in at this moment is the only way the world's ever been. It reminds me of being a kid in Louisiana. I thought it was pretty great because I had no idea there was anything else. (laughs) As you travel some, your perspective begins to change. As you study this planet, as you study uh, the history of the nations on this planet, you have to come to a few interesting realizations. This is important because when we're approaching the biblical view and say that the laws of science don't allow the sun and the moon to stand still, that this is just a figure of speech, we're ignoring incredible evidences that both astrological and geological catastrophes and changes are evidenced all over the globe. Now let's talk about ancient man for just a second. Who's seen the show Mythbusters? Yep. Mythbusters tried it and couldn't do it, so it must not work. 
Then they tried it again and couldn't quite do it, kind of did it and said, maybe it works. Can I tell you that many ancient civilizations attest to the fact that Archimedes developed a heat ray and that it burned ships. Now, why do we say that's not possible? Because we can't do it. Do you know how many things are in the ancient world that we cannot do right now? By the way, how many of you can sit down and write out 50 phone numbers right now? 30 years ago, if I asked that in this room, most people would be able to do it. I could do it when I was in the second grade, but I can't write out 10 right now. How do you know what we've lost and haven't lost? Because we assume that the world is as it is right now. How many of you would like to be taught physics from a textbook in the 50s? How much has the science of physics... Don't you want to go back and go, wait, you so confidently affirmed something that you didn't know? You presented it as fact? They don't do that, do they? How about this one? 300 B.C. They are manipulating molecules in Damascus steel. And we don't figure out how to do this till well after the Industrial Revolution. You know, I have no idea what they could do on the earth before the Noahic floods, but I know after the Noahic flood, we were reduced to what four men knew how to do. Forgive me, four women as well. I mean, what would, what would be lost right now if we reduced everything to what four people could do? Wow. I'm, you'd know what a computer was. Could you build one? Look, despite all of man's achievements in science, you know right now we don't have the ability to produce from scratch a single blade of grass? Think about that the next time you let somebody cut open your head. How about this thing? They found it in a shipwreck. They don't know what it is. It's, it's considered by some to be an ancient computer. It seems to point or enumerate in some way astrological things. But we don't understand it. We can't figure it out. It has 3,500 letters on it and we still can't figure it It has its instructions printed on it and we don't know what it is. <laughs> but we're pretty sure that the ancients were stupid and were smart. Let me tell you why I'm, I'm getting at this. Okay, You can kill that. In most ancient cultures, and I'm talking about all of the big ones, the calendar did not have 365 days on it. Nobody had 365 days. They all had 360 days. They had 12 months. They had 30 days in each of the 12 months. This is why when you see a circle that has 360 degrees in it, it's why time is divided into 30s, 60s, and 12s. The ancient world, who depended on the stars for travel, who looked at them... How many of you could go outside and point to Mars right now? Yeah, me either. But all of the ancients could. You know why? Their world depended, and they were fascinated with the planets. And it seems that they greatly feared the planets. I don't, I don't begin to know why all of that's true. 
but I know it's universal around the globe, and we just back and we say it's because they were stupid, it's just lore, it's just myth. Well, they weren't stupid when they built machines. We don't know what they are. They weren't stupid when they... I didn't even show you the Great Pyramid. Let me just tell you about it for a minute. The cornerstones in the Great Pyramid have an arc between them. It's not straight walls. You can't see it with the naked eye. They measured it with labor, lasers. All of the corners. So we're talking one, two, three faces to it. All three faces have a curvature between the stones that is exactly to the fourth decimal place to the right of zero. The curvature of the earth. Standing on the earth, you can't see the curvature most of the time. And yet we consider it flat, and mathematics tells us it's not. Standing at the Great Pyramid, it looks flat. It's not. Okay? We'd have a hard time doing that with that kind of precision right now. The stones in the base to the Temple Sphinx can't... We could barely move them with all of the world's largest cranes in concert. These people did this with no cranes. Ancient man was not stupid, and yet almost every ancient culture had a different calendar than we do. Somewhere around the year 700, there were changes that happened. And when those changes started to happen in all of the ancient calendars, they coincide. They're not all in the same month, obviously, but it has to be significant that the majority of ancient calendars began making revisions to their calendar in the year 700. What if these were not improvements? What if they were adjustments based on stellar changes? What kind of stellar changes happened prior to the 6th century? Well, we have a long day in Joshua. We have 15 paces on the sundial in Hezekiah's day. By the way, you know the Jewish calendar, how complex it is? It's lunar. It's based on 12 months, except in the year 700 and something. Hezekiah added a 13th month. A 13th month that would come into play over a 19-year cycle to make adjustments because something changed where all of the feast and the seasons had been locked before that And now, if we don't make an adjustment, then the feast will begin to appear within different seasons because something's out of kilter. Isn't that interesting? interesting. It's almost as if something happened in the stellar realm. But that can't because things have always been just like they are today. Never anything that you haven't personally observed could have happened. You follow me? And we're treated like we're idiots for suggesting that God can adjust the stellar realm. Where would we get an idea that God doesn't do stuff like, could it be that the theologians that made him a prisoner of their theology allowed the scientists to make him a prisoner of his own creation? Could it be? Okay, let me tell you why I'm talking to you about this. Those great stones falling from the sky. Let's let's read it a little bit. Are you all okay? Can we have a few minutes here? On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeah, O moon, over the valley of Ahijalon. So the sun stood still, the moon stopped, and the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jashar, 
The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Who did the stones that fell from heaven kill? It's in the previous verse. On that day the Lord gave them... Let me find the exact verse. As they fled before Israel on the road down to Bethhoron to Azka, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky... And more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Amorites. Who was killed by the heavenly stones falling? I'm not trying to explain this as a natural event, because remember, only Amorites were killed by the stones. If these are some kind of meteorites, let's play with this for a minute. What had to happen? I don't know, planet blew up, something happened. Whatever God did. Those things had to be hurling through space. When did Joshua pray that the sun would stand still? When did this whole problem arise? Do you mean God foresaw that Joshua would make a mistake with the Gibeonites? He foresaw that he would be in this event, and a long time before he put some rocks in space that are then going to enter the earth's atmosphere. You know, I was praying about this, and I'm thinking, Lord, how did you... Anybody been dove hunting in here? Dove hunting? It's hard to shoot those things, isn't it? They fly fast. What do you have to do? Lord, how on earth could you... Uh, how could you kill those Amorites with, with rocks from heaven? He said, it's easy, you just don't lead them so far. (laughs) We serve a God who even though the man is in a mistake, repeated on the earth, because he's keeping his vow and he was aiming at mercy, God aimed only at the Amorites. Oh, come on now. When you're aimed at perfection, God will aim at your enemy. Look, science that's better than your treatment like it is. Now let's 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 see if we can just smack it out of the ballpark before we send you home. Uh, I don't know who wants a good one. Steve Thomas. Take Leviticus 24, 13 through 16. Uh, Mario. Take John 8, 58 through 59. Uh, Alex. Take John 10, 31 through 33. And uh, David. You're going to turn to Revelation 16 and I'll tell you where in a minute. You know, God was a little bit upset with the Canaanites. Apparently, he didn't like uh, their sexual relations problem. And uh, didn't like that they worshipped other gods. Let's read these passages and see what it tells us. Leviticus 24, 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head. 
and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them. Whether foreigner or native born, when they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. Among God's people, when you blaspheme God, when you show utter contempt for his existence, you know what's supposed to happen? God's own people are supposed to throw rocks at you until you're dead. What does it mean when God's throwing rocks at you from heaven? He gave them four centuries to repent. And they didn't repent. They kept sinning, and they kept sinning, and they kept sinning. So the Israelites didn't have to put them to death. God stoned them from heaven. Wow. Wow. Okay, let's read our next one. John 8, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple ground. Sometimes men don't understand what is and is not blasphemous. They looked at Jesus and they thought he was blaspheming because he claimed that he was, uh, in substance, God. He wasn't blaspheming because he was, in substance, God. They wanted to stone him and they shouldn't. Judgment's supposed to begin with the house of God, but when you don't see clearly, you can't judge clearly. Let's read our next one. John 10, 31-33 Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. But which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Is it pretty clear that the crime of blasphemy receives a stoning? Can you begin to see that the book of Joshua, the inhabitants of God's land, that were blaspheming his name in his land, he stoned from heaven? It's pretty cool, huh? What's the last couple verses of Revelation 16, David? From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hell, because the plague was so terrible. You mean that he stoned the inhabitants of his land as a precursor? Because there's a day coming when he's going to stone the inhabitants of the earth all over that are idolatrous? God will not be blasphemed, friends. He's already got the meteor shower waiting. Somebody turn to Job 38, 22 and read it. Job got into this little thing with God, you know. And God was kind of flexing his muscle. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail? His whole magazine's full. I don't know how many it's going to take, but we're getting an idea how many he's going to use. Okay, I probably need to close this because it's 1120. Uh, I would just say this. If you read Zechariah 14, it has something in common with Joshua 10. These are both days in which God fights for a nation, the nation of Israel. Make sure in all of your theology and all of your thinking and all of your Christian walk, you never do anything that allies you against Israel. Because God fought for them in Joshua 10. He's going to fight for them in Zechariah 14. 
And you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. He might have a meteor shower with your name on it. <coughs> Can you imagine that we're standing in this room and rocks fall from heaven and only kill the idolaters? I told you that a book of prophecy would warn you, it would advise you, and it would show you what king to place over you. I want you to be warned about idolatry. I want you to be advised about not limiting God in your theology or your view of the creation. And the king that I hope will reign over your life is mercy. Because it's the currency of the king. To the extent that you show mercy, it will be shown to you. Let's stand to our feet.